You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Are you ready to talk Padres baseball? We've got you covered. Now is the right time to bring back Padres Social Hour as we await the start of the regular season. Friar Faithful, get ready to sit back, relax, and join the conversation. Now, coming to you from everyone's homes around San Diego and beyond, it's Padres Social Hour with your host, Jesse Agler. And good evening, everybody. Welcome to Padres Social Hour on this Tuesday, June 9th. We've got a lot to get to. We thought it was kind of going to be a slow day. We didn't think there was much news to report. And then all of a sudden, bam, in the last little bit, a lot of stuff coming out about a new offer made from the Major League Baseball Players Association to MLB ownership uh, about a potential 2020 season. We will dive into that in just a moment. Also visit with Padre outfielder Trent Grisham coming up in a little bit. And Mets broadcaster Howie Rose as we look back at a very quirky this date in baseball with him. Very happy to be joined tonight by A.J. Casavell of MLB.com and San Diego media maven uh, Ben Higgins. You hear him in the mornings on 97.3 The Fan, Ben and Woodshow, and, of course, see him on Channel 10 Sports as well. Great to have you guys both here. Thank you uh, very much. Uh, first, our check-in before we dive into the news of the day. Ben, how, how are things? Everything all right? Hi, Jesse. Good to see you again. Um, yeah, everything's good. Uh, you know, we're just continuing to follow this back and forth between the owners and the players and uh, wondering when a deal is going to get done. Uh, we're all eager for baseball to start again. So uh, maybe we're getting a little closer as we get to this news you're about to share. And AJ, you've actually been kind of busy the last couple of days because even with all of this stuff going on in the background, there is an MLB draft tomorrow. Yeah, it's kind of nice. It does feel a little bit normal because in a normal season, they would essentially let us step away from the team for a little bit, have someone else fill in and let us focus on the draft. And that's essentially what I'm doing right now. So in some ways, this is the most normal I have felt in three months since, since the season was put on hold. Well, thank goodness uh, for the draft. All right, as we said, uh, some breaking news just in the last little bit here. Uh, in terms of a new offer made from the players to the owners, we're going to run through a bunch of tweets here and try and be as uh, informational as possible. Informative, that would be the word I'm looking for. Start with Jeff Passan of ESPN. Uh, players Association making a proposal to MLB for a season of around 89 games. Uh, he would later clarify exactly 89 games with a full prorated share of salary and expanded playoffs. Sources familiar with the situation told me uh, it would bring the sides closer to potential deal about 25 games less than the previous offer from the union. More details from Jesse Rogers, who covers the Cubs for ESPN. 89 game season proposal would start July 10 and October 11. Uh, the proposal from the players to the owners includes plans for an expanded postseason for both this year and next year. That is, by the way, something the owners cannot do unilaterally. Uh, we've learned in the last few days. So that might be significant. Uh, Passon continues, while MLB will reject this offer from the union, it takes the sides much closer to a likely number of games. As hard and fast as the PA is on full pro rata, though, the league is entrenched on ending the season September 27th. Important. And based on what I've heard, by the way, this is now Jesse talking, not Passon. Put like this, a, a, a highlighter through this part, underline it in red several times. TV networks do not want to move playoff games. That is very very significant. Uh, one other piece here from Bill Shaken, which I thought was kind of interesting. He of the LA Times. Uh, Players Association proposal envisions a $5 million fund that will assist minor leaguers 
and charitable organizations focusing on social justice initiatives. Just kind of nice to see that that's uh, being considered with everything else going on. Uh, John Heyman pops everybody's balloon. Uh, he writes, initial reaction from ownership source following players' latest proposal, quote, we're nowhere. And isn't that what we all wanted to hear at this point? I think we have one more tweet. Uh, this comes from our buddy Scott Miller, Bleacher Report, Fox Sports San Diego. Owners likely will have a counteroffer of their own. Today's players' offer surely won't be accepted at his, but I like that the owners made a proposal at 9 a.m. Monday, asked for an answer by Wednesday, and the players countered Tuesday, today, a day early. Finally, there seems to be some urgency. Ben, I love that point from Scott Miller. I think that's maybe a good jumping off point for today. It seems like the brinksmanship game that's been going on for the last several weeks or even months at this point has been missed deadlines or non-deadlines. All of a sudden now, things are moving. Yeah, other than John Heyman's tweet, which is like, ah, but the rest of them actually seem to be uh, relatively good news if you want to see a baseball season coming up. I think the biggest concern that I still see, and you mentioned that it's the, they don't want to move the playoff games, the TV contracts want to keep those locked in. It's also a worry about extending the season too long for risk of a resurgence of the coronavirus. And if the regular season doesn't end until October 11th and there's an expanded playoffs, you figure a postseason would delve deep into November, you know, mid-November, closing in on Thanksgiving. And that seems too late for the owners to really uh, kind of get behind because they'd be worried that by that point, uh, things might not be tenable uh, if the virus comes back. So they really want to get those playoffs done in October, right around Halloween, first or second of November, like usual, uh, to give the best chance that they're actually going to get to finish the postseason once they get it started. Yeah, and I know John Heyman's tweet wasn't the most optimistic sounding, but from the rest of it, I think what we gather here is that the two sides are definitively getting closer, at least on number of games and possibly even percentage of, of salary. And so I, I, I can kind of view this only as only through a positive light, especially in the sense that something happened yesterday, a response happens today. Maybe we're getting to that point where things need to happen and the ball needs to get rolling. Look, there are people. People want to say that the other sports have their have their plans already up and running, but those sports themselves aren't up and running. And so if if there is serious progress made, hopefully in the next few days, over the next week, then maybe you put all this behind you and say, hey, there's baseball and here's what we need to do to make sure everyone's healthy. Here's what we need to do to make sure we have this season. And let's go and play a season that maybe even starts before those other leagues get back on the on the court or on the ice. Yeah, it'll be that's a really interesting point because if, if baseball does get back on the field, perhaps all of this will just sort of be easily forgotten. I'm sure that's the hope of everybody on both sides. But Ben, as we followed this thing and you on your radio show, obviously, on TV sports and us on this show every day, I mean, the two things that seem to be most significant to the two sides for the players, it's getting that 100 percent prorated salary. So if there's 82 games, they're paid for 82 games. Exactly. Not any further reductions on the owner's side. This ending the season at the end of September, the regular season, and not playing into November, as you said, because of viral concerns as well as television concerns, those seem to be the most immovable aspects of all of this, which I guess, and perhaps this is Pollyannish and naive, seems to me there's still a lot of room to come together between those two things. Yeah, I mean, owners have been kind of creeping up a little bit, bit by bit, the the total percentage of salary they'd be willing to pay. I think it started around 30%. It's gone up to about 35% with the latest offer. Um, the players are still, you know, a lot higher than that. Pro rated for 89 games would be 
you know, about 55 to 60 percent easy math of their full salary. So there's still about 20 percent between them. It does seem like there's a middle ground, though, and that would be, you know, around 40 to 45 percent of total salary around maybe 70 to 75 games. And you could do that. Still get underway before the NBA playoffs, which are scheduled to start on July 31st. You could start in mid to late July, July 20th and September 27th. Get about 70 games, 65 to 70 games in. And maybe that's the the middle ground that we're working toward here at the end. Talk and to I've how you wrote... con- Go ahead. Sorry. Well, I was just going to say, I was going to add that I've kind of come to the conclusion that if you get to that 70 game mark, which is basically a second half of the season, from where I'm sitting, and I know we've gone through endlessly over what would constitute a season that we could define as a championship season where with, a, with a deserving winner and whatnot, but that to me is what hits it, and it seems like we're at least getting closer to that mark. Yeah, I think the longer the better, the more baseball the better for a lot of reasons. That's certainly one of them. Mentioned Howie Rose going to join us in a little bit, the, the longtime Met broadcaster. He's got some pretty strong opinions on that and sort of the legitimacy, for lack of a better word, uh, of a season, however long it is. But also the the point I think he will make, as you'll see in the interview, I mean, he says, like, some baseball better than no baseball. And I think that's something we can all agree on here. Agree. Yeah. Thank you. Yes, agree. All right. So that's uh, that's <laughs> the latest. That. We'll, we'll, we'll try and keep an eye on Twitter as the show goes along here. Uh, probably some more reaction and analysis coming. Uh, but that's sort of the latest. And, and again, I'm with our buddy Scott Miller. I think the most significant thing out of all of this, honestly, is the fact that the Players Association responded today when they had until tomorrow uh, to respond. That shows a sense of urgency we really haven't seen uh, in the last couple of weeks. So again, we'll keep an eye on the uh, news of the day, continue to do our thing here, and uh, have some fun talking Padre history and baseball history. That would include a very, very, very significant moment in Padre history on this day in 1981. uh, The Padres selected in the third round of the June Amateur Draft won Anthony Keith Gwynn out of San Diego State University. Uh, AJ, you've been doing a lot of top five lists as of late. Uh, I think you can make a very easy argument. This is the biggest moment in Padre history. May have lost AJ. Ben, you can. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's, oh, there we go. That, that, no? I'm sorry. My, my, my feed's cutting in and out a little bit. I may have to log off and come back on in a second. But, uh, yeah, I, I think if that if that's not the most impactful moment in franchise history, maybe it's the existence of the franchise coming into play. But but without Tony Gwynn, what are the San Diego Padres? It's it's I mean he's just so integral in the two best teams that the, that that have existed in San Diego, the '84 and '98 clubs. Uh, what he did for the city and the way the city responded to him is I think transcendent. It's, it means more than just baseball. And yeah, I, I I would make a case that if that's not number one, maybe number one is the 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 birth of the franchise, then it's it's one A. It is such a defining moment uh, to to add, you know, a Hall of Famer, and this was the day that it happened. But I always find one of the most interesting parts of Tony Gwynn getting drafted is a lot of people think he was a first round pick. He wasn't. He was, I think, the fifty eighth overall selection in that draft. But he was also taken in the tenth round of the NBA draft. There's not a lot of guys who are drafted in two different sports. But what makes Tony really unique is that. The NBA draft happened on the same day. So this is also the anniversary of Tony getting drafted on the NBA draft. And, of course, he made, I think, the smart decision to go with the baseball career 
uh, rather than the basketball career. He said, little undersized in the Mountain West, didn't know how that was going to play uh, in the NBA if he stuck with basketball. But he did love being a point guard and playing basketball. But imagine what a day in a young person's life to get drafted by the Padres and then get drafted again in the NBA later in the very same day. Yeah, it's a remarkable thing. Like you said, the the fact that the Clippers took him the same exact day uh, makes the story a a thousand times better. Uh, You saw as the stats rolled by, and I think most Padre fans have those committed to memory, uh, but the gold gloves, I think, are always worth revisiting a little bit. Teddy and I have had this conversation many times on the air. I've talked to to Tony about it as well, Junior, um, and and we dug up a a cool piece of video here, Jack McKee, and this is obviously a couple of years into Tony's career, uh, talking about the improvements uh, that Tony made defensively because he wins all these gold glove awards, um, but he did not enter the big leagues or enter professional baseball as what you might call a plus defender in the scouts eyes. And he really turned himself into a, an elite defensive player. Take a look. When we first drafted Tony Gwynn, he couldn't throw. Uh, he was not that good a fielder. And if you've seen him put in the hours day after day, working to correct his mistakes and try to improve his throwing, uh, try to improve his feeling, uh, you just have so much respect for the man after seeing a guy that made himself into an outstanding major league ball player. That's such cool stuff. Um, that's one of those, uh, truths maybe of baseball, right? It's hard to get better at certain things or a lot better at certain things, but you can always try and strengthen your arm. You can always work on your breaks in the outfield, that kind of thing, Ben. And, and Tony committed himself fully to that endeavor. You can, and and certainly all guys do. I mean, you know, we were out there spring training watching guys. They work on fielding all the time. But there does seem to be a sense, um, whether it's among fans or even some scouts and and veterans of the game, that a lot of defensive ability is kind of natural, and uh, either you have it or you don't. So the fact that Tony was able, I mean, to take not just a small, he didn't just refine his defensive game and go from, you know, an elite fielder to a gold glover. He went from a pretty mediocre fielder to one of the best outfielders in the game. He took huge leaps during his career in his defensive game. Not a lot of guys do that over the course of their career. It's one of the uh, hidden remarkable parts of Tony Gwynn's really Hall of Fame career. The great throw to get Moises Alou at third base in the 98 postseason against the Astros. The Caminetti flop tag in support that tag. of Kevin Brown. I mean, that's, that's, uh, that's the hose right there. Moises not happy about it. Sorry, bud. But, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's one of those uh, really wonderful pieces of the uh, tremendous Tony Gwynn story here in San Diego. And, again, it all began on this date in 1981. As mentioned, draft coming up tomorrow. We'll certainly talk a lot about it on tomorrow's show. Padres have the eighth overall pick, which we think will probably be made about 45 minutes before this show starts. So we'll be able to get you some information on that selection at the start of tomorrow's show. Uh, they've got six overall selections in the five rounds of the draft Um, But we had an opportunity earlier today to visit with Trent Grisham, the Padre outfielder acquired this winter from Milwaukee and the deal that sent Eric Lauer and Luis Urias to the Brewers uh, was having just an absolutely stellar spring when, of course, everything happened and uh, the baseball world, like so many other things, shut down, but did have the opportunity to catch up with Trent, who was the 15th overall pick by the Brewers a couple of years ago earlier today to talk about his draft experience and, of course, the state of the world.
Trent, thank you so much for taking the time. Good to see you and appreciate you uh, visiting us with us here. Padre fans, we're getting to know you pretty good during spring training. And then, of course, uh, the world happened. And, and here we are a couple of months later, still waiting for you to suit up for the first time in a, in a real game. Before we get to baseball, though, uh, obviously, it's been a, a rough couple of weeks in this country for reasons that have nothing to do with the pandemic. Uh, we've heard from a lot of black baseball players uh, and white ones, for that matter, about everything that's been going on. For you, what what has the last couple of weeks been like? How have you been feeling? And uh, maybe just give us a little bit of insight into what your experience has been like. Uh, yeah, I mean, um, with all the events that happened, uh, me and my wife have talked, and we, I mean, these everything's been weighing on us pretty heavy, um, especially just uh, part of, as far as the black of the black community. Um, I just wanted to say, like we. We're just asking people to educate themselves and um, do the research themselves and seek out um, stuff that's against your narrative and really just listen to your black community because um, these things are actually happening. And we're just looking. We just need everybody to open their hearts, have empathy and um, give us a start looking at it the way we see it. Very nice. There's uh, there's no way to segue away from that into baseball, so I won't try, but we'll continue to listen. Certainly seems to be yeah. the most important thing. Um, mm-hmm. your spring was incredible. I mean, you were raking, you were hot. Uh, we were like, Oh, this guy is, is, is on fire. Uh, how was it feeling for you as we watched it? Oh, it was fun. It was nice to get acclimated to a new team so quickly and kind of really feel like I fit in and, uh, talk to or get to know a bunch of different guys and uh, a whole new coaching staff for me and, um, just get excited and see all the talented guys we have on the field and, uh, try to compete and win. Drafted by the Brewers, you had spent your career in their minor league system up until the trade, obviously. Um, how big of a challenge was that, if it was, getting to know the new guys, showing up to a different camp for the first time? As hard as I thought it was going to be, they made it uh, very easy. It was a very welcoming group. Um, um, I knew a couple guys to start um, with. Uh, I think I, I just knew Naylor. And um, had uh, me and Paddock had a few mutual friends that um, uh, were been around. But um, just having that experience with Naylor and having him show me around a little bit. And then just the welcome arms of uh, every other guy on the team was nice. One of my main jobs during spring training is to find out as much about you guys as I can from talking to as many different people as possible. Uh, Skip Schumacher made a a comment one day when he was asked about you, probably if I recall correctly, after everybody realized you were hitting like 700 in the spring. uh, And and he mentioned your batting practice and how he compared it to Chase Utley, um, just kind of different than most guys. He said, you go up there and you're just spraying the ball all over the field, total back control kind of situation. Tell us a little bit about your BP, where that comes from and, and why it works for you. Uh, it's just kind of like, that's kind of my time uh, to just get locked in with my, my swing. Um, and it, it just centers from uh, really asking myself to do the least, Heart, like at least amount of things possible in my head, but just try to do something very simple, like hit ground balls a shortstop. Um, and that's really all I ask myself during BP is to try to that that helps me get my swing where it needs to be. So I just ask myself to uh, hit ground balls a shortstop, and then um, I have a round where I try to just uh, catch it with that same mindset, catch it out in front, and then whatever happens happens, and then just kind of that just kind of centers me and gets me ready for a game. How long has that been the approach during batting practice for you? Uh, it kind of really took off last year when I started having a lot of success. Um, the foundation of it and then the comfortability with it, it just kind of grew from there and it's kind of evolved and escalated into what it is to an actual. I mean, really, at first it started with just 
kind of uh, one of our guys standing out at shortstop and me trying to mess around and like hit ground balls to him. And then it was kind of fun for me to hit, try to hit targets, stuff like that to shortstop. And then I felt like that was really kind of my, the center, like the basis of my swing. I felt really good with it and kind of just made it into what it is today. Uh, last year, you mentioned it. Things go really, really well for you. Uh, minor league player of the year in the Brewer system, get up to the big leagues. Uh, the power numbers are kind of what jumps off the sheet. I think when we're looking from a, a statistical standpoint, I think it, it eight home runs was the most you'd ever hit in a season before last year. You're into the twenties at double A and triple A combined in 2019. Did something click for you in terms of the power? Was it just about getting comfortable? Take us through the power surge last year. I always felt like I was like a strong kid that could, hit the ball out of the yard, but I mean, it really, I guess, I think it really came from just consistently hitting the ball in the barrel. And like, like I said, getting back to that center of my foundation of my swing and how I feel comfortable and staying centered and not trying to do too much and not ask too much of myself. New Padre Trent Grisham is with us. Uh, draft starts tomorrow in MLB. This is one of the reasons we wanted to talk to you. Uh, you've got that experience as a, as a high draft pick 15th overall by the Brewers couple of years ago what would you say to the kids who are sitting there i imagine on pins and needles right now getting ready the guys that know they're going to be top picks or they could be you know picks in the first couple of rounds just about trying to stay sane these next couple of days uh well I did, what i didn't realize until after the draft because you really as a, in the position of getting drafted you have no control over what's going to happen it's going to be crazy things that you don't expect are going to happen are going to happen um, so just enjoy it and have fun. Cause I know I did, I was, I got around my, um, friends and family and we all just, uh, hung out and watched it on TV and hope for the best. And then it all played out great. It certainly did. This year, of course, is unusual for a lot of reasons. Only five rounds in the draft. Uh, on top of that, I mean, these kids haven't had the high school kids, their senior years, uh, for the most part, they haven't been able to play. Can you imagine what that must be like, you know, for these guys having to basically sit back on, on what they accomplished maybe last summer in their junior year of high school? Uh, yeah, it's kind of, I mean, it sounds tough. Um, I know I have, I have a couple of uh, younger siblings or younger friends, siblings um, that this was their senior year and they had to, I mean, and it was just talking to them. It was tough just because, I mean, your senior years are probably one of your most fun years, especially as a high school kid. So, I mean, it was kind of tough. They got their baseball season taken away from them. But, I mean, hopefully um, they're good with whatever happened the year before where they sit, and they can just go enjoy it and have fun. All right, last one for Trent Grisham. Padres hold the uh, eighth overall selection in the draft tomorrow. Obviously, we don't know who it's going to be, but what would your advice be uh, to that guy? Pretend it's a normal year for a moment, and he's going to report to rookie ball, which, of course, doesn't look like it's going to be the case. But what would your advice be to, to any guy drafted as, as they get ready to begin this this journey, their pro career? Uh, it's it's a lot of fun. Um, stay driven to what you – I mean, you're going to have a lot of things happen from here until you get to the big leagues. So stay true to who you are and have a lot of fun meeting a lot of new people and have fun traveling and playing baseball because I know the minor leagues was very fun for me, um, making a bunch of new friends and um, hanging out with a bunch of guys every day and just getting to play the sport that you uh, love. Great stuff. Trent Grisham, one of the new Padres, like we said, was just having an outstanding spring. Looking forward to getting you on the field uh, for realsies, hopefully sometime soon. Thanks again for visiting with us, man. Take care. Thank you. Thank you.
All right, it's Trent Grisham, one of the uh, new Padres who's mentioned acquired this offseason from Milwaukee uh, in the deal that sent Lauer and Arias to the Brewers. Bring back Ben Higgins and A.J. Casabell. Now, A.J., I referenced several times. That, oh, you guys moved. Um, I, I referenced several several times there his, his great spring. I think probably the best way to talk about this is that going into the games in Cactus League play, we were talking about center field like it was a position battle. And a couple of weeks later, we weren't really having that same conversation anymore. Yeah, it felt like it happened without us even... Usually the stories get belabored to the point where we're like, who's going to be the center fielder? And we talk about it every single day. This one just kind of almost happened without us even realizing it. And one day it was pretty obvious that Trent Grisham was the favorite for the starting role in center field. Uh, I I think there's a lot to be gleaned from the fact that he was having success against lefties and righties in spring training. Because if he can do that, if he can be a a regular out there, uh, that fills an important gap in an outfield mix where there might be there might end up being a platoon or something in right field and so uh, yeah he was having an excellent spring I thought that I, I I was I think I was there when when Skip made that Chase Utley comparison which I thought was particularly apt because if his batting practice is like that or if his cage sessions are like that his swing also it, it doesn't look exactly like Chase Utley's but they're both kind of unique in the same way in that they're they're, they're almost shortened and have the same kind of finish to them. And so, uh, yeah, I, I thought it was uh, I, I, I thought it was a pretty impressive spring for Trent Christian, especially for a guy who's coming who's young and coming to a new organization, kind of being expected to step right into into a if not a starting role, at least an important role in the outfield. First of all, it's pretty crazy that AJ drove to my house and I drove to AJ's just so we could change places during that interview to freak you out, Jesse. <laughs> Second of all, I, I thought Trent Grisham had a chance to be the real wild card for the Padres this season. And by that, I mean a player that if he took a big leap forward after the you know the flashes that we saw uh, with him coming up with the Brewers, that he could be a real impact player. Uh, one of those guys that you weren't necessarily counting on for a ton during the season, but it had the potential uh, to like really fill a solid part of the lineup, either near, you know, like the seventh slot, or if he really started hitting a guy, you could move up uh, to near the top of the order. If, if that was a way you could use him and uh, that would make him a really valuable option for Jace Tingler this season. Yeah, no doubt about it. It's funny too, because we're sitting here talking about spring training position battles, something I honestly haven't thought much about in the last couple of months. And and we know that if, and when this season gets underway, there will be a, what's going to be called, I guess, spring training 2.0. But I don't believe you would really have true exhibition games, probably a lot of sim games, inter-squad games, that kind of thing. Hasn't been a ton of reporting done on that. Maybe there would be some games, but I would imagine guys that it would be really, really hard to unseat someone or win a job in those three weeks, even though it's kind of the same amount of time that could be taking place in March, just because of the weirdness of the situation. Maybe I'm wrong. I haven't really thought of it much until now. Um, but AJ, it'll be sort of fascinating, I think, if and when there is a spring training 2.0 to see how the, the so-called depth chart moves around if it does. And that's a good point, especially if, I mean, if the roster size changes, then obviously some of the position battles change. But how do you say... How do you if, if Trent Grisham had in in my opinion and I think in our opinions if he had kind of earned that starting job in center field how do you say to him well you're no longer the center fielder because you struggled in an intra squad game so <laughs> you you might you might be right we might kind of already know who's where in the in the pecking order obviously things could change based on what size the rosters are and maybe you have additional platoon opportunities for some guys uh, because there's extra space I don't know the specifics of that we don't know the specifics of that until we get a deal between the two sides but. Uh, yeah, I think maybe what we learned from spring training, it got cut a couple weeks short, but that might have been 
all the roster battle noise we we needed for the year, and now we're gonna if and when the season gets back rolling and and underway, we get to a point where it's just let's get these guys ready. We kind of already know who's where. I know what you're saying, Jesse, and and I think you're you're right to a certain extent, but I think it depends on the philosophy of the team in question. A lot of teams put way more stock into you know, how a guy performs in a spring training game when they're facing live pitching, live opposition. I've talked to other, you know, coaches and, and GMs who, who really like to watch what players do on the backfield and, and how they're just swinging in the cage. And uh, they get a good sense of guys, just the work they're putting in. So I do think if there is a guy who comes into the second spring training and uh, just seems to really be locked in, and I think they could move up at least into a starting position. I mean, I don't think they're going to you know, dismiss anyone entirely after they had a good spring if they didn't look great coming back. But I think there will be opportunities for players in these you know, three to four weeks, however long that they have to get ready for the, the start of the season if and when it comes. Yeah, obviously it'll be case by case and team by team. No two situations will be identical, but it, it'll be different. You know, there's no question about that. Second base for the Padres, you think about Dozier yeah. and Profar and Greg Garcia. That was still very muddled, uh, you know, when we all departed Peoria. Uh, Jake Cronenworth, uh, who's got extreme value if you talk about a bigger roster because he can pitch a little bit as well. Um, yeah, it'll be kind of a fascinating thing uh, to track. Again, if and when. I guess those are the, uh, the, the famous words of, of the moment. All right. So that's uh, that's that. One of the ways we've been passing time on this show uh, is by picking a team from the KBO, the Korea Baseball Organization, to follow and cheer for. And it has gone horribly for us from a win-loss perspective. Uh, the KT Wiz lost again last night as we open up our KBO sadness report. Um, unfortunately, it, it's a skid right now. They've lost four consecutive games. Uh, last night, uh, they faced Matt Williams, Kia Tigers, Tigers in red, whiz in white. And, and that reaction by the starting pitcher tells you just about everything you need to know about yesterday's game. Guys, it has gotten to the point with the whiz where uh, the only thing making me feel better about things is the fact that the Hanwha Eagles have now lost 15 consecutive games. Uh, they fired most of the coaching staff. The manager resigned. Then the other day, they sent 10 players down to the minor leagues in one fell swoop. And the new manager even came out uh, the day after and said that uh, he had thought about sending the entire roster down to the minor leagues, that he was just going to fresh start the whole thing because of how badly it's going. So they lost again last night. 15 straight. Ben Higgins, put on your Hanwha Eagles managerial cap. What are you doing to try and rally the troops after 15 in a row? Well, I, I, I didn't pick the, I didn't pick the KT Wiz. I picked the NC Dinos. We're 24 and six. I, I'm fine. <laughs> I, I, there's no sadness at all. I, my team is a juggernaut and they can't lose. Jesse's. <laughs> I must have been out the day we picked the Wiz. Yeah, Ben, I, I I think the day we picked the Wiz, I was on the show, and I think I threw the NC Dinos into the conversation and got shot down. And so no, I I said, oh, everybody, no, everybody's a bailer. <laughs> I'm not bailing. I'm still I'm still Wiz forever. You give me you give me enough you give me enough for picking Liverpool back when I didn't know who they were or what they were. If I if if I pick the Wiz, I'm going to stick with the Wiz. And so, as long as they're ahead of the SK Wyverns, who my brother picked, which I'm looking at the standings right now, and it looks like now they're tied, uh, but. As long as they're ahead of or even with them, I'm, I'm, I'm happy with their performance. Uh, Sam Levitt is the uh, announcer for the Padres AA affiliate in Amarillo. Apparently, he's a Samsung Lions fan. Get out of here, Sam. What are you <laughs> Team Wiz, come on. No, uh, it's, it's <laughs> cool. 13 and 18. Like, 
you know, the, the reality is now I go through the scores every morning and I kind of check, you know, the box scores, that kind of stuff. And it's like, I know all the team names. I'm starting to know some of the players. It's like a whole, you know, a bit of information washing over me that I, I almost didn't even know existed. So it's, it's, I guess, been one of those weird uh, silver linings of the whole situation. So that's our KBO sadness report. Uh, nothing sad about these top five lists that AJ has been doing wonderful work uh, for on Padres.com. It's been fun arguing and uh, bickering about the top five this or the top five that. Uh, latest list, which you can find out. AJ, uh, this is one that didn't have too much drama at the very top. Trevor Hoffman, the best relief pitcher in Padre history. I think we can all agree on that. But a lot of fun reading about the, the rest of your top five. Yeah, this was a good one. This was kind of the one that, I mean, if, if some guys snuck onto a list on other spots, on other places in the diamond, uh, no one snuck onto this list. In fact, I had to leave some guys off who probably would have easily made other top five lists for other teams. There's three Hall of Famers on this one and, and a Cy Young winner outside of those three Hall of Famers. And so uh, it was really hard for me to come up with number two. Number one was just so glaringly obvious, but the debate for number two might be five or six guys deep. And so I, uh, I ended up going with Heath Bell. I think it's pretty incredible that you can follow Trevor Hoffman by being essentially as effective as Trevor Hoffman, albeit in a shorter period of time. But I mean, he led the league in saves and, and I think it was 40 plus in three straight years, uh, which I mean, that those are big shoes to fill. You don't, you don't come in and take Trevor Hoffman's job and expect to be, do what Trevor Hoffman did. And, he did it, and so I, I give Heath Bell that number two spot. He's probably the second most valuable based on his tenure. Number three, Goose Gossage, who might not deserve the number three spot if not for what he meant to that 1984 club, and so I've been giving myself some leeway here to go outside of just the numbers and, and go a little more into what the guy meant to maybe the, the direction of the franchise, the direction of the team. Uh, that was a maybe the Maybe the most impactful free agent signing in franchise history, at least until we see what Manny Machado accomplishes. And then four Mark Davis, five Raleigh Fingers, a Cy Young winner, and a Hall of Famer. Like If I'm dropping Raleigh Fingers to five, given what he did in San Diego, I think two straight save titles right when he got here, that's a, that's a pretty deep list. I, I would say relief pitchers and right field are obviously the two best, but just the depth of the relievers, this is probably, probably the most loaded position on, on the Padres' all-time list. You can make the argument that it's the relief pitcher position is the hardest to compare eras because they had yeah. such different roles, uh, you know, in the 70s and the early 80s, as opposed to what Trevor Hoffman would come in and almost exclusively pitch one inning at a time, whereas Goose Gossage might pitch three or Raleigh Fingers might come in, you know, much earlier in the game. How would Trevor Hoffman have fared if he had to pitch the seventh, eighth, and ninth? Would the changeup have been effective? you know, the second time through the order, if he faced, you know, 10 or 11 batters, I have no idea. So, I mean, I think Trevor obviously is an obvious number one. And, and I picked Heath Bell as number two, when you put the poll question up on Twitter as well, AJ, but I'm more of a, you know, a modern school baseball player. I've seen so much more of it. And I can't promise you that I'm not, I'm not biased by my own eyes and, and what I saw, because it is hard to compare those numbers. It is such a different role. Yeah, the, that Ben hit exactly what to me stood out among everything was like you kind of rethought through the way that relief usage has changed over the years. Everybody kind of says, you know, Tony La Russa turned it into a specialized uh, ninth inning kind of situation with Dennis Eckersley in Oakland as far as the closers role is concerned. And now it's been changing again these last couple of years. Kirby Yates, obviously, who's a, a, a next underneath, I think, right, AJ, um, was used in a traditional way last year. But we've seen that really changing or starting to change a little bit bit around baseball also very good trivia 
uh, in there about Raleigh Fingers uh, being the only Padre to win back-to-back uh, save titles in terms of leading the league. I think if you're sitting on a bar stool with some friends, you could throw that question out there and, and win a nickel or something like that. That's that was that was sneaky good, AJ. That's that's a that's a fun one. Yeah, they have, the, the Padres have a lot of a lot of save leaders throughout their history. I want to say five different guys have led the league in saves something like nine or ten times. Which I mean, the Padres haven't always been a playoff team, obviously. So that's that's pretty impressive. Kirby Yates, obviously, being the being the being the yatest. <laughs> Being the latest, um, but but yeah, like it's 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 funny just how much the role has changed and how hard it is to compare guys from different eras. Like Ben said, I mean, I'm I, someone brought up Mike Adams on Twitter the other day, and Mike Adams was incredible, but he wasn't doing what Raleigh Fingers did. They they were in San Diego, I think, for the same number of seasons, and Raleigh Fingers pitched twice as many innings. And if his ERA was twice as high, what does that mean? Who's more valuable? I don't know. I'll leave that to smarter mathematicians than me, but there are some, I'll, I'll just say this. There are some very, very good relievers in San Diego. Padres. There's something magic going on because even, even the year Trevor Hoffman was hurt and they had to bring in Rod Beck to be the closer for a year, uh, washed up, you know, living in his, his, his trailer and uh, throwing about 80. He still, it was very effective that season as a closer. It's remarkable what success the Padres have had out of the bullpen in their franchise history. Yeah, it's definitely uh, from a depth standpoint, as you both have said, uh, right at the very top, it would seem. And uh, Raleigh never ages either, man. He looks great every time you see a picture of him. All right. uh, Another on this date in baseball history. This one is, frankly, as goofy as it gets. It was this date in 1999. I grew up a Met fan, so I I was in high school. I remember this better than probably uh, most people watching. But uh, there was a weird call. Randy Marsh, the plate umpire, throws Bobby Valentine out of the game. And Bobby V, who's a little bit of a different cat, he emerges later uh, in his disguise. He's got eye black mustache and sunglasses. Obviously, MLB, when you're ejected, they expect you to, like, go to the clubhouse. I think there's a a little bit of a tacit understanding, perhaps. You might uh, communicate in a way you're not supposed to, but you certainly don't show your face. And uh, he came out uh, incognito, as it were. And uh, it, it didn't go over great, generally speaking, with the baseball world at the time. Uh, it's Oral Hershiser, by the way, on the left uh, sitting there. And and I, I'm fascinated looking back at things like this years later because I feel like the game has finally started to loosen up a little bit. And this is maybe a similar conversation, if not identical, to bat flips and the way we feel about that. Um, it, it's that, you know, everybody was kind of pounding on the desk when this happened about how it wasn't appropriate and everything like that. And now I look back at it 21 years later and it's as absurd and hilarious, uh, I, I think, as it could possibly be. So we figured who better to catch up with and discuss this aside from Bobby Valentine uh, than Howie Rose, the longtime Met broadcaster. He was doing that game on television. He actually laughed when they showed Bobby V on TV. And as you hear, he ends up getting a, a phone call about that. So here you go. Howie Rose talking about Bobby V and his disguise. Howie, great to see you. Appreciate it very much. And uh, sure. let's talk some baseball. That's that's always a good thing. Seems like we haven't done enough of that lately. Uh, life okay, though, for, for you? What, what's going on right now in your life? It is. I'm at home in Florida and um, still trying to hit a golf ball without a great deal of success. But at least I've got some extra time to try and try and get it right. But at the same time, it's time for baseball. And um it's beyond time. It's maddening. It's frustrating. But the old cliche is it is what it is. And until they tell us otherwise, I'm playing golf. Um, we've heard so many different versions of what might be 
what could be. Do you have any strong feelings one way or the other about, this is the question I've asked everybody, I think that we've talked to at any point in the last couple of months, the legitimacy, and I hate that word for this, but of a, a shortened season, whether it's 50 games or 70 games or 80 games, they're going to be handing out a trophy at the end of it, I assume. Yeah. And, you know, I, I agree with you about the word legitimacy, because in a sense, it's in the eye of the beholder, right? It, 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 we all know, and history will certainly document, that whatever happens as far as baseball is concerned in the year 2020 is going to be different. It's going to be unique to the game's history. And there will be a tacit understanding that baseball in 2020 was hopefully just a one-off. It's different. So is it legitimate if they play 82 games, but not legitimate if they play 40 or 50? My biggest concern, and I think it speaks a little more to the possibility of expanding the playoffs and having as many as 14, 16 teams involved, that the more teams you bring into a postseason tournament, the greater the chances that you're going to have some team that really shouldn't be there, perhaps stealing a championship. And yes, if you have a shorter season, then there's a greater likelihood that uh, an inferior team might get in. But the more of those that you bring into the conversation, the greater the likelihood that one of them could go all the way. And, and I'd be uncomfortable with that. But again, if it's all we've got, then it's all we've got. And let's get on with it. It's interesting, too, because in baseball, we've got more than enough practice with this kind of thing, whether it's 1981 and the odd season that was or even the steroid era. You can go back to Mantle and Maris and the asterisk because of the number of games in that season. We, we've sort of ridden this wave before in the history of the game. This will be different for sure, because this will be a far shorter season, assuming we have one than we've ever had before. And so in, in view of that, and I know a lot of people have made comparisons between uh, what hypothetically would take place this year with what the Washington Nationals did last year. They got to around Memorial Day. And in fact, I think their low point came after the Mets had swept them a series at City Field and whatever their record was, 12, 14 games under 500. Uh, you know, if, if that turns out to be the same number of, games, at least approximately, that are played this year, well, then, you know, you're looking at the potential for a team that might have blossomed as the Nationals did to not get that chance. But again, we're going to chalk that up later on when we look back at this year. It's going to be goofy. It's going to be different. This is the time to experiment. And I hope that as whatever rancor exists right now between the two factions that are trying to get an agreement that what we don't lose in whatever is established as a season this year is the experimentation that figured to be done. The DH in the National League, um, you know, perhaps double headers of seven innings the way they do in the minors to squeeze as many games in as possible. You want to put a runner on second base to start extra innings? This is the year to do it. And I'm in favor of all of those experiments to see what might or might not work down the road. Kind of on the same page with you there, as, as we've discussed a lot on the show the last couple of months. Uh, you mentioned the Nationals and you had one of the front row seats in the NL East last year. We saw them early twice, I think. You know, the, the first time was right around the low point and then maybe a couple of weeks later. Um, so we, I remember, vividly talked about how bad the bullpen was. They couldn't get anybody out. Uh, Doolittle even blew a save at Petco, as I recall. Um, what did you see as the year went on that brought them from 19 and 31 to eventual World Series champions? Nothing in May, but the inevitability that given the fact that they are a, a high-profile team and a team with a pretty good amount of resources, they'd be able to make some moves and 
figure some things out as they went along, and they did. Um, you know, that's the beauty of baseball, the fact that yeah. you can struggle right through Memorial Day and pick yourself up and, and find yourself in contention in September. That's going to be missing this year. And so that in and of itself is what makes this year unique. But look, if it's either that or nothing, and I'm amazed, somebody quoted me a number the other day, that if, hypothetically, they would only play 50 games this year, would you rather not have a season and go straight to 2021, or would you be in favor of playing the 50 games and having a a postseason tournament, so to speak? I believe it. the number they quoted me was 54%. More than half of the respondents said, turn the page, I'll see you next spring. I'm not one of those. 50 games, is that all we're going to have? I'm fine with it as long as we get baseball back. It's better than nothing. Yeah, no, I'm right there with you. That's a fascinating piece of polling. Yeah. Uh, I, I wouldn't have expected that at all from baseball fans. Uh, one of the main reasons I wanted to speak to you today was we were talking about it, the anniversary of what I think is one of the most infamous and hilarious moments uh, in recent baseball history. This date in 1999 Bobby V, Bobby Valentine, the Met manager, gets ejected from an interleague game against the Blue Jays, uh, and then he re-emerges in the dugout. You were working television for the Mets with Fran Healy for this game. What do you remember about it at the time and, like, your initial thoughts as it was all unfolding in real time? Jesse, I saw it for what it was, which, and you have to understand the context, the Mets in 1999 spent a good chunk of money that previous offseason and were expected to do some really big things. They didn't get off to a great start and there would be some coaches fired along the way and what looked like a potentially championship caliber season uh, might have been starting to slip away right around the time that the Mets and Blue Jays were playing that night at Shea Stadium. So it was easy to see what Bobby Valentine's motivation was. He wanted to loosen things up a little bit. You understand what it's like to be a team underachieving in New York under great expectations. And the Mets were feeling the brunt of that, to be sure. And so when Bobby had the opportunity, A, to go out and have his players back, as he did with the argument, and B, and perhaps most importantly, um, after having been thrown out, to provide a little levity in a moment that was almost surreal because you'd never imagine that uh, you know, he would have had the stones to do it. That's the thing I remember most. He wasn't fooling anybody. Every, we all knew it was Bobby, but, you know, he still had the gumption to go through with it. And, and the baseline uh, motivation for it all was just to lighten the load and kind of create a, a, a bit of a jovial mood in a situation where for the Mets at that time, it was anything but. And I thought he pulled it off beautifully. What was the reaction to it? Not from you necessarily, but from, uh, I guess, internal, external uh, opinion makers. Way, way, way more serious than I thought. I think the Mets hierarchy was a bit embarrassed by it because they felt that Bobby might have crossed the line. Fran Healy, my broadcast partner, and I were told that maybe we could have been a little more serious about it. But it wasn't a serious moment. And it was easy to see within the context of a baseball season that still had nearly four months to go. And however much the Mets might have felt that maybe they were uh, beginning to slip away a little bit from contention, which really wasn't the truth. It was still so stinking early. But again, New York being what it is, you know, the pressures are there every day in a way that they're not in most other cities. You know, we, we just looked at it for what it appeared to be at face value. So, um, you know, something of, uh, I think, the prevailing wisdom or the prevailing feeling among those who were not in favor of it, 
was that maybe Bobby disrespect disrespected the game a little bit. I thought it was anything but. So he was fined. I don't remember if he was suspended or not. I know that there was some disciplinary action. But, you know, even now, and here we are, what, 21 years later, my goodness, can we have some fun in this game? What was the harm? So he broke a rule. Okay, you fine him, you suspend him for a game, whatever. But can we have a little fun now and then, please? It does feel like we've come a little bit a ways since then, especially in the last couple of years. Is that your sense, too? Well, I hope we have. And I think whenever we get baseball back, you know, we're at a very tense time right now in this country for a lot of reasons, as we've seen beginning in March with COVID. And now, of course, with the uh, racial unrest and the, um, you know, the the killing, the murder of, of of George Floyd and, and all of the resultant protests. And I mean, this is, this is a wounded country right now in every sense of the word. And I'm not solely pinning the responsibility on baseball to begin to heal us, but at the very least, we can be a little bit of an escape. And so along those lines, when this game does resume, as I'm certain it will at some point this summer, we need to understand context. We need to understand what sports mean right now. I don't know, given everything hanging over our heads between uh, the two things I just mentioned, plus um, the economy being what it is in this country with all the people out of work, nobody's got patience for what's happening in baseball right now. The demand universally from fans is get on the field. What I worry about is that when we do get back, disposable dollars are gonna be at more of a premium now than they've been in a long time. And if I'm Major League Baseball, I don't want to give people uh, any different avenues in which to spend those disposable dollars if they had normally uh, been spent on baseball. So, you know, we've got to understand baseball's place in this country right now is not so much to heal as it is to entertain. And that's why it's got to get back on the field and they've got to loosen the strings a little bit and give the players a chance to be, in fact, entertaining. Nah, beautifully said. Always uh, great to see you, even under these uh, odd circumstances. One of the best uh, in our business, certainly, and, and for a long time now. Howie Rose, Mets broadcaster. Uh, thank you for this, and uh, hope to see you soon at some ballpark somewhere. Maybe in the World Series if they let us travel, or at least the National League uh, playoffs, right? Exactly. Why not? Thank you, Howie. All right, that's Howie Rose, uh, Met broadcaster. Uh, he's on Twitter now, by the way. That's that's a new development. I, I had intended to bring that up with him, but we went a little long, so I figured stick to the baseball stuff. Bring back uh, AJ Casavell and Ben Higgins, guys. If uh, a manager got ejected in 2019, uh, returned to the dugout in uh, fake glasses and a fake mustache, social media would do what? Ignore it completely. Well, that's a little. <laughs> yeah, no, that's that. It's already been done. So that, hopefully, the manager would be grilled for not being as original as you could be, but not necessarily for for the sin of maybe having a little fun in the midst of a long season. I I I fully agree with you, Jesse. I mean, I understand the pressures of playing New York, but the Mets were a playoff team that year anyway, and so I mean, I, I don't understand why there would be outrage about something like this, aside from the fact that obviously there needs to be some sort of sort of punishment for this because when you're ejected, you're ejected. But maybe let's just institute the punishment and then move on and have a laugh about it. I have mixed feelings about Bobby Valentine. I think he was a really good manager, a really smart manager. And he also knew he was a really smart manager and sometimes acted like it. Like maybe he was above some of the rules and looked down on you a little bit. And 
it's just got mixed feeling, but he obviously knew what he was doing and, uh, and had a lot of success when he was in the dugout. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So anyway, funny little quirky piece of baseball history uh, on this date in 1999. As mentioned, MLB draft gets underway tomorrow. Uh, By this time tomorrow, the Padres will have made their first selection number eight overall. Obviously, uh, all very excited to kind of see where that goes. And we'll have complete draft coverage for you on the show. Um, Some big names coming out of this draft for the Padres the last couple of years, including that left-handed pitcher Mackenzie Gore, who we're also excited uh, to see. Uh, again, tomorrow, Padres will draft eighth overall, 34th overall. Then they will have four more picks on Thursday. There's C.J. Abrams quickly ascending all of the uh, prospect leaderboards around baseball. A.J. Preller had a, a pre-draft conference call with the media earlier today. Both of you guys were on that call. A.J., perhaps going into it, at least one of the most fascinating aspects of this thing is uh, the fact that, like the NFL draft previously, this will be virtual for the first time. Yeah, and A.J. Preller actually took his cues from a couple NFL general managers. He wouldn't say which ones, but he talked to a couple of them to kind of iron out, I guess, some of the logistical challenges and some of the challenges about talking to guys and how you go about evaluating guys. And I think that's especially fascinating in, in the sense that, I, I, I mean, I've never been in that draft room, but I know how heated and how intense and how exciting some of the discussions are. And for them to all be happening virtually, I'm just very curious as to how that challenge will play out. Uh, AJ Preller kind of offered some, he, I think there was one line in, in his media session today where he said something along the lines of, yeah, we'll still be having those discussions and we'll sit back and we'll enjoy the draft and da 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 like it was a normal draft. And I, I think that was maybe the only time in the 19 minute uh, media availability that anything sounded any, any bit normal. So I don't think it's, it, it's, it's, it, it'll be interesting to see in a lot of different ways, how the effects of the, canceled amateur season affects everything but the virtual draft aspect is definitely interesting too i find it funny how baseball is now trying to adjust to a virtual draft i remember the first draft i covered and you know i'm not 100 years old this was like 2000 and or 2001 and it was just a conference call the first round and it lasted about 10 minutes tops and you could just listen in and and hear the people make the picks and they just went one team to another there was no production everyone was uh, virtual wherever they were. So th- that's 20 years ago. We've come a long way uh, into the production that they've kind of made it at the at the headquarters and uh, MLB Network there in New Jersey. Uh, but now it's just going to scale that back. But I, I don't think it's going to be a huge problem for teams to, to have. as AJ said, it's not like in football where they're they're pulling off trades with different GMs all day long. That that doesn't happen the way it does in football. So I think they'll manage just fine. Yeah, I I, I think for me. The far more interesting challenge here is the fact that the guys who are being drafted haven't played organized baseball in months uh, than it is anything about the communication on draft day. I'm fascinated by that. It's amazing, though. I mean, everybody we talk to says, hey, it is what it is. It's the same for every team. Um, But obviously, that has to have a a pretty great impact on it. So that's tomorrow, uh, the MLB draft. And I believe it gets underway at 4 o'clock in the afternoon Pacific time. And the Padres will be selecting eighth overall. All right, Ben, every time you're here, we like to have something uh, golf-related teed up for you, pun intended. Uh, and, and golf, like all the other sports, of course, trying to figure things out from a logistical standpoint. Uh, I saw this today, and I would like your uh, your expertise applied if possible. Apparently, the PGA Tour uh, is going to have a charter jet for players and caddies to take from city to city as part of its return to play uh, plan later on this uh, summer and fall. Uh, $600 a seat. No booze on the plane. Room for 114 people. 
Uh, availability is being prioritized by your world ranking, which I love. Uh, and also tournament winner gets a first class seat. So I don't know if there's only one first class seat or maybe two for the guy in his caddy. Uh, but but nonetheless, uh, this is obviously not generally how these guys travel uh, from uh, place to place a week in and week out during the, the PGA Tour season. Um, what, what do you make of this? Well, you know what? I'm disappointed because we had Charlie Hoffman on our radio show this morning and I didn't ask him whether he was using the the charter flight or not, because they're starting this week with the first tournament in Texas at Colonial. Um, I think that, you know, the guys who have their own private jets are still allowed to take those. So you're not going to see Tiger on this flight. He's going to fly his own jet. Phil will be in his own jet. But I think it's it makes sense um, as opposed to making a bunch of different connections, because uh, obviously you go from one Gulf city to another. It might not be easy, especially right now uh, to get a direct flight. And I think the last thing these guys want to do is, transfer through a couple of different airports on their way from tournament to tournament six hundred dollars at least you think you could at least get a little you know a beer on the way there but <laughs> i guess not <laughs> hopefully a nice meal something like that yeah we'll, we'll see aj uh, how it stacks up compared to the uh, the writer's charter that goes from city to city during the mlb season <laughs> yeah we'll see uh, all right, coming up on Fox Sports San Diego tonight, uh, continuing to replay uh, fun moments in Padre history. Uh, tonight, I believe, a doubleheader. Uh, a couple of different Trevor Hoffman-related uh, ball games to watch, uh, or ceremonies at least. Uh, the retirement of his number 51 uh, coming up first, and then the second end of the doubleheader on Fox Sports San Diego, beginning at 7 o'clock tonight. Uh, will revolve around the game in which the Trevor Hoffman statue was unveiled. So plenty of uh, cool Trevor Hoffman-related content coming your way, some specials and some neat information. Uh, that's uh, tonight on Fox Sports San Diego, beginning just over 30 minutes from now at 7 o'clock. That's how we're uh, leaving things for now. The show began with AJ and Ben, uh, some breaking news in terms of a new offer being made by the Players Association to MLB. Uh, I guess final thoughts on on that as we head into what will probably be another interesting day in baseball history, Ben. I think it's going to be um, – it's hard to get a deal done in the next couple of days. They're getting closer. I still feel like we're maybe a week or so of proposals going back and forth away from finally settling on a number that neither side is that happy with but I guess can both live with for the, for the good of the game. And I'm kind of hoping we'll see baseball – around July 17th or so to start the season. Yeah, and so everyone's just tied for first place at the All-Star break. If we just view it that way, it could be a really fun end of the season. And I, like I said earlier, I, I think we are making progress toward there being a season, and if that's what it ends up being, July 17th is is probably earlier than the NBA and NHL, aside from what they have to do preseason-wise. And so, um, it, it's look, it's not the best look that all this is playing out so openly on, on social media and in so many other places. But if baseball can get back on the field, especially in advance of other sports, given that it had probably the most logistical challenges and the fact that it had, had to start a season as opposed to just wrap up the very end of one, um, we're getting closer to that point where hopefully we can play baseball and worry about that and, and maybe the rest of what's happened is forgotten because there's guys on the field doing what we want to see them doing. That's it. Well, Perhaps. It's completely different tomorrow. So don't hold me to it. <laughs> That's the way this works. So we've all learned that call me Pollyannish, but uh, I'm, I'm with you guys. I think 
uh, or I hope at least that, you know, if and when the season does get underway, this will all be water under the bridge. Uh, you kind of say, all right, business is business. We can move back to enjoying things like Fernando Tatis Jr. running wild uh, on the base bats. Thanks to, to both Ben and AJ for hanging out today. Also to Trent Grisham, uh, Padre outfielder and Met broadcaster Howie Rose for joining us. As mentioned, we'll be back at it tomorrow at 5.30 p.m. to talk draft and whatever else is going on in the world of baseball. It will not be boring. We can assure you that. Thanks to everybody for hanging out with us. Hope you have a great night. Stay healthy, and we'll talk to you tomorrow for draft coverage at 5.30.